It's good to see everybody. We enjoying 2011? Yeah? If you laugh, someone laughed. I like that. <laughs> Any, uh, anyone make a few New Year's resolutions? They're going okay? Anybody want to change? Anybody have things that they want to change? Because that's what I want to talk about today. Um, I, I want to talk about change this morning. And one of the reasons is because we often talk about how the gospel changes us, how it heals us, how it converts us. And, and the kind of change that the gospel promises is not this outside-in change, but it's, it starts with the inside, and it works its way out. It starts with the heart. And we're not talking about a morally restrained heart. We're talking about a supernaturally changed heart. Not reformation, but transformation. But that um, kind of begs this question. Are we changing? Is the gospel changing you? See, I think some of us right now are in denial. And we don't understand that we do need to change. And here's the thing about the gospel. If we have it, we will change. And if we're not changing, because that's what the gospel does, we might not have it. And I think some of us have uh, kind of settled for that erartery that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. We've learned really well how to play the part, how to dress the part, how to talk the part. And yet the reality is that what's underneath all of that are closets that are full of just stuff, junk, addictions, anger, bitterness, selfishness. I think some of us today are genuinely frustrated when we think about this idea of change because we look at people in the Bible and we see, we see stories of change and then we even hear testimonies and, and we see people who are being changed by the gospel and we're just kind of left thinking, well, why is that not happening to me? Why am I not changing? Is there something wrong with me? Well, more than anything else, for 2011, for Crossroads, I hope you know this. I've never cared even this much about growing a big church. Jesus did fine with just 12 and maybe 120 who changed the world. But I would love to see God grow his gospel into my heart more, into our community more, so that we are being set free to become more like him. And now we're left with that question then. How? How does that happen? How does the gospel change a person? Believe it or not, I'm going to Romans this morning. I, I, I don't think I've ever preached from Romans, certainly not at Crossroads. And I'll just be honest with you. I'm intimidated to preach from that book. I mean, that book is so awesome. And, I mean, it's Paul's mag magnus opus on the gospel. 
In fact, in the first chapter, in, in verse 16, he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the very power of God for salvation. And I don't want to assume this morning that we all know what the gospel is. So let me just really quickly state what it is. The gospel is not this righteousness that I produce or perform and give to God, but the gospel, rather, is a righteousness that God produces through his son, and he gives it to me. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. It's not anything that we have done. It is a gift of God. And this is why the gospel is unique from any other religion, any other idea, any other worldview, because the gospel is not achieved. It's simply received. And see, I think our hearts, we've been taught that anytime there's a good thing to take hold of, we have to achieve it. But with the gospel, you don't achieve it. You just receive it as God's gift. But then that raises this question. If it's all God, then why can't I just live any way I want? Why can't I just live it up? Sin it up. Why do I even need to change? Why would I even want to change if it's all God? Well, Paul answers this question after he, in the first five chapters of Romans, clearly and brilliantly lays out the gospel. Then when you get to chapter 6, he answers this question. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. It's found on page 799 if you have a Bible like mine. What shall we say then? Shall we just go on sinning so that grace may increase? There's the question. By no means, says Paul, we die to sin. How can we live in, in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through, to, through the glory of, of the Father, we too may live a new life. There's the promise of the new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in the resurrection, his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life Christ lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's what we are. Brought from death to life. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. What then? 
Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? There's the question again. By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and you have been set free. Set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, I, I, I could get bogged down in a text like this. In many ways, it would require five, six sermons to do justice to this text, but I'm going to do it in one. So I'm not going to cover everything. And because I'm right-brained here, um, I mean, my mind can go all over the place. Uh, I need some handles for myself on which to kind of hang this text and organize it. And I've, there's three words that I want to do this that not only act as handles, but I think these three words are the keys to how the gospel changes a person from the inside out. The first word is the word slavery. I know that's a kind of a strange word when we're talking about change. But I'm going to start at the end of the text that we just read. Because when you look at verses 16 to 18, the word slave or slaves is used a lot there. And what Paul is saying is this, we're all slaves. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe. I don't care if you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, an atheist. Every person in this room right now is a slave to someone or something, whether they know that or not. I think most of us are pretty clueless about this reality. A lot of that is because, you know, we've been raised in a culture that just so values freedom. We pride ourselves on our freedom. We live to be free. In fact, I think as I've been a pastor all these years, one of the main reasons why people reject Christianity, I think, is because they rightly know that if they entrust their life to Christ, that they're coming under someone else's control and they're going to have to submit to that control. But here's what they fail to realize, that no one is free. I mean, you might think you're free, but you're a slave. And like Paul says in these verses, you're either a slave to God or you're a slave to sin, namely yourself. That's why in verses 13 through 19, 16 or six times, Paul uses this word offer. Because right now we are all offering ourselves, we're offering our bodies, We're offering our lives to someone or something. There's something that gets you out of bed in the morning. There's something that gives your life meaning. There's something from which you derive your sense of worth and value. There's something that gives you happiness and satisfaction. And see, whatever that thing is, that is what you are really living for. 
that is what consumes your time. That is what consumes your thought. That is what kind of turns your crank. And whatever that thing is, it exercises this spiritual power over you. It's a spiritual master. And you've offered yourself to that master. You're under that master. I mean, I think about it even with something like money. How many of us have been taught, you know, if we get just enough money, we'll be free. And look how many people then get what they say is enough money. But instead of them owning their money, their money ends up owning them. Same with possessions. We think we possess our possessions, but in reality, our possessions really possess us. And the more we possess, the more we're possessed. And you can apply that, I think, to everything. You can apply it to relationships. You can apply it to power. You can apply it to status, entertainment, sport. And here's some of the irony in all this. And I wouldn't have seen this to the extent that I see it today had I not lived four months in another culture. But here we are, and we've been raised in this culture that prides itself on freedom. And yet I think we are the most enslaved people on the face of the earth. I mean, just look at all our bondage. Bondage to habits. Bondage to stuff. Bondage to time. Bondage to our pleasures. Even our screens. How many hours in a day are you just staring at a screen? I said that to my kids this week. Do you realize what slaves we are? To just the screens we look at in a given day? And see, we have to have this stuff. We have to have our houses. We have to have our cars. We have to have a certain kind of car. We have to have this and that and this and that. And I'm telling you, all the things we think we must have, need to have, the rest of the world doesn't have. We're slaves. Now look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says this. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Now, there's a word here that might be one of the most missed concepts in the New Testament. And my guess is right now that you have no idea how often this word is used in your New Testament. In fact, it's mentioned almost every time our New Testament speak of transformation and supernatural heart change. The word in the Greek is epitomia. And I wish I had time right now to show you all the places where it's found in the New Testament. It's found in other places in Romans. It's found in Ephesians. It's found in 1 Thessalonians. It's found in 1 and 2 Timothy. It's found in Titus. It's found in James. It's found in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. It's found in 1 John. It's found in Galatians, Colossians. It's this catch-all word that describes... What's truly wrong with our hearts? 
And in this verse, it's translated as evil desire. In other places, it's translated as lust. And so when we see this word, I think we just automatically think that it's our desire for bad things, usually sexual. This isn't talking about sex. Because the word breaks down this way. Thymia is the word for drive or desire. Now you add the prefix epi to that, and what you have is an epi-desire, an over-desire. So epithemia is not necessarily a desire for bad things, but an inordinate or all-consuming desire for good things that oftentimes leads us to evil. And see, this is the way that sin works on our hearts. It's not so much that we want bad things, but that we want things too badly. And this then is how people lose control of their lives to other spiritual masters. And I'll tell you what we're talking about right now. We're talking about idolatry. Because if you want to know the sin that's beneath every sin, it's idolatry. And here's what I mean by idolatry. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make that good thing into an ultimate thing and then we substitute God for that thing. Are you doing that with anything right now in your life? Are you taking a good thing, making it into an ultimate thing and then replacing God with that thing? What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Because the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said it this way, no one can serve two masters. But here's our problem, and I think John Calvin put it best. He says our hearts are like these idol factories. Because our hearts will worship and will adore something. And so what our hearts are constantly doing is we're taking good things, whether it be a job, whether it be a pursuit, a sport, a pleasure, our kids, a relationship. And we take these things and we make them into ultimate things. To the point where you and I can't live without them. And they become our spiritual masters. And we offer ourselves to them. We serve them. We give our life to them. Honestly, ask yourself this question. What are you offering your life to? What are you offering your body to? What are you offering your time to? So you can sit here today and you can sit here every Sunday and kind of say, oh God, you are my God, you are my master. But listen, your real master is not the God that you pay lip service to, but your real master is that from which you derive your sense of meaning, that from which is your security, that from which you derive your, your joy, your satisfaction, your sense of worth. Whatever that is, that's your real God. That's your master. And see, this is why all sin points us back to the first commandment. 
every time we sin, we're breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Why do you lie? When you say, well, because I'm a sinner. Yeah, but sin is a lot deeper than that. You lie because human approval or money or saving face has become too important to you. It's become a God to you. Why do you not keep Sabbath? It is one of the ten, you know. And see, we just kind of write that thing off. But I'll tell you one of the reasons. We just say, well, Jesus didn't keep Sabbath. Yes, he did. He just kept it biblically. But I think we just dismiss Sabbath because time has become a God to us. And we need all the time in in the week to spend on me. Why do you covet? Why do you steal? Why do you murder? It's because your heart is saying, I absolutely must have that thing. I can't live without that thing. I'll kill to have that thing. See, and that thing then has become your God. Or look at it from this angle. We all have emotions. God gave us emotions. Emotions are good. Emotions are appropriate. They help us deal with life. I mean, do you ever get mad? Thank you. One person. I get mad too. Um, But here's the question. Why do you get mad? Well, it's usually because something or someone is blocking a good thing. A good thing in your life is threatened and so you get mad. But what if someone or something is blocking an ultimate thing? You get epi mad. You get over the top mad. You rage. You blow your top. There's an idol. Are you an angry person today? Are you bitter? Are you having trouble right now forgiving someone? Don't you know that at the root of all this is a spiritual master which is controlling you through epithumia? What about worry? I mean, why do we worry? Because probably something good in our life is being threatened. Well, what happens if that good thing is an ultimate thing? We go into panic. And we're paralyzed with fear. Or what about sadness? Sadness is a very appropriate emotion. And we feel sadness when we lose something that's significant to us. We weep. We mourn. But what happens when we lose something that's ultimate to us? We can't even get out of bed in the morning. We want to throw ourselves off a bridge. See, this is how epithemia works on our hearts. It creates all these idols. These idols then become our lords and masters, causing our hearts to say, I can't live anymore unless I get that. And see, that's why if you don't know this and you think you can just go and sin and sin it up and think it's not going to matter at all, you are fatally naive. 
about how the human heart works. And unless Jesus is your Lord, not just with your lips, but your functional Lord and Master, your life will spin out of control. Second word, unity. Or I guess it could be union. Or even better yet, it could be marriage. Because look at verses 3 through 5. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we become united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And here's what these verses are teaching. I mean, it's just awesome. That if you have thrown yourself into Christ, and baptism is a powerful picture of this. It doesn't do it, but it's a picture of, of, of what is. Just like I said earlier, the, the, the wedding ring doesn't make anyone married, but it's a powerful picture of marriage. Same with this. We are united with Jesus. In fact, this word united here, it's a vineyard or an orchard term. It means to be grafted into the root. So can you see that picture? That when we trust Christ, we are literally inserted into him. And what that means is this, that the essence of Christianity is not that I know about Christ or even that I'm obeying Christ or that I'm listening to Christ or praying to Christ or worshiping Christ. But the essence of Christianity is this, that you are in him. You're in Christ. Wrap your minds around that because that is an awesome thought. And see, what Paul is saying in these verses is this. Christ's death is my death. Christ's resurrection is my resurrection. Think about that. Christ's past is my past. Christ's future is my future. That's awesome. Because that means... Everything that is true about Jesus right now is true about me. And see, what Paul says in verses 6 through 10, and I get bogged down in those verses because there's so much detail. I think Colossians 3 says the same thing, just a little bit more clearly or succinctly. Colossians 3, Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ... You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Again, that's describing something that's already happened. You have died. You have been raised with Christ. And think about it right now. Where is Christ? Where is he? He's not standing. He's sitting. Where? At the right hand of God. Now, what's that? That's the place of ultimate privilege. 
the place of ultimate honor, the place of pure intimacy with the Father. That's where Jesus is right now. Why is he there? Well, look at him. Look at who he is and what he's done. He gave it all up. He let go of all of it. He became nothing. He became a slave and died a slave's death. He is the hero of heroes, the champion of champions. He is stunningly beautiful and glorious and perfect. And the father looks at him and says, son, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to place you at my right hand. My son. World, you see him? My son, in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, the father's heart just explodes with love for his son. Delights in him. Cherishes him. Now hold on to your seats. You're in him. I'm in him. That means God raised me up. And right now I'm seated at the right hand with him. I'm seated in the heavenly places. So it's as if I had lived the life Christ lived and I died the death Christ died. And he looks at me and he treats me just as he looks and treats his son. I'm stunningly beautiful right now to the Father. My son. God, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. That's awesome. And see, right now, I, I, I know what some of you are thinking. You're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, mm-mm. That's too good to be true. I am way too unacceptable. I am way too unworthy. But I'm going to tell you something. God doesn't accept you just as you are. That's a fallacy that many of us have been told. And and deep down, we know it's a fallacy. He accepts you. As you are in Christ. And see, one of the things you learn in marriage after you've been together for a few years, and for us, it was because we're both loud and proud and out there. It's something we learned in just a few months. You know, you, you really get to know that person, and you see that person for who they are and what they are, the good and the bad and bit of the ugly. You know, your wife then kind of knowing all this comes to you and says, you know, Rod, do you still love me? And you say, yeah, Libby, you know I love you. But it doesn't stop there. Then she asks, well, why? Why do you love me? Well, be careful. Because 
my heart wants to say, Libby, I love you because you're beautiful. You're, 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 just, you're gorgeous. I love you because you're smart and you're brilliant. I love you, Libby, because you partner with me. I love you, Libby, because you're the wind beneath my wings. But you know what? Guys, if you're single and you're going to get married someday, file this one away. When your wife asks you that, don't tell her the truth. <laughs> because you know why? Deep down then she knows. What if I lose that? Libby, I love you just because I love you. And see, in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, that's what God says to his bride. I didn't set my heart on you or love you because you're the best or because you're the most righteous or the most powerful. If anything, you're the least righteous. You're the smallest. I love you because I love you. And see, what Paul says in verse 14 He says, for sin shall not be your master. Why not? Because you're not under the law. You're under grace. And that's what grace is. You want to know what grace is? It's God saying to us from his heart, I love you because I love you because I love you. And see, it's grace and only grace that frees us from law. Because law still says, Rod, it's all about you. It's about you, Rod, making yourself acceptable and pleasing to God. It's about you performing better. It's about you trying harder. That's law. Grace is, I love you, Rod, because I love you. And see, it's only grace, not law, that's going to free us from all those masters. And if we're ever going to experience this profound gospel inside-out change, we must understand grace. And I'm going to tell you something right now. This is hardest for religious people to understand because religious people are proud people and proud people don't want to give up the fact that it's all God, all his love. It has nothing to do with me. A religious person still wants to say, no, Rod, it's all about you. You can do it. You can do better. You can try harder. You can give God actually something that's really good. And that's why if I have a word of exhortation right now, if, if I'm going to change, if we're going to change, it's going to come through really one thing, humility. Because unless we humble ourselves and can really acknowledge nothing in these hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress. We're never going to get it. And we're never going to change. Third word. We're all slaves. We enter this union, this marriage. And now this forms our identity. Third word is identity. And our identity is this. 
right now I am in Christ. And this ought to define everything about me. And here's the thing, for, for this to define me, I need to think this thing in. And I think some of the reasons why, why people don't change today is because they don't know who they are right now in Christ. It's kind of like people who have been slaves for generations and, and finally they're made free. But although they're free, they still think, they still act like they're slaves. And that's what it is for so many of us who are Christians. Even though we're, we've been set free, we still think and act in all the old ways. And that's why in verse 3, and in verse 6, and in verse 9, and you can carry these verses out, but Paul's saying things like, don't you know, or we know, and we know. And then by the time you get to verse 11, he says, count yourself now. It's a command to us to think. Because this is stuff that we need to think in. I don't care if we think it in through prayer, we think it in through worship, but it's something that we need to think into our hearts. And so much of Christianity today is thoughtless. It's like trying to run from one emotional experience to the next emotional experience to the next emotional experience, and people don't understand then why they live this roller coaster. Because God gave us something awesome to think about that we need to think in. That's why in Colossians 3 it says, set your mind on this. Set your heart on this. Every day I have to preach this to myself. Things like verse 13. Rod, you've been brought from death to life. Rod, you've died. Rod, you've been raised. Rod, right now you are hidden in Christ. Rod, right now you are seated at the right hand of God. Right now, Rod, you are just stunningly beautiful to God. My son, Rod, in whom I'm well pleased. Rod, I love you. Just because I love you. I gotta preach it to myself. I gotta think it in. And I'll tell you what this does it sets me free. Freedom from performing. Freedom from this need to prove myself. Freedom from pretending and hiding. Freedom from human approval. Freedom from needing to be perfect. Freedom to actually confront the idols and the sin that's still deep in my heart. Freedom from all other masters. Freedom from living for me. Freedom to say yes to God. Freedom to wholeheartedly give myself. And see, the way the gospel changes a person, it's not through coercion. It's not through fear tactics. It's not even through me applying willpower. It's not even through accountability. I mean, all these things are helpful and God uses them, but even take accountability. Sometimes I think accountability, as much as I need it, it, it just ends up me trying to please people instead of God. See, the way the gospel changes us is it melts us. 
I mean, just imagine a big piece of iron, a big slab of iron. How do you reshape it and change iron? You could pound it till you're blue in the face and you're not going to reshape it. The only way to reshape iron is by melting it. And that's the way the gospel works. That's the power. It doesn't just beat on us and beat on us and beat on us trying to change us. It melts us. And I'm going to end with this story that for me brings us all together. In the movie Three Seasons, there's a storyline that might be one of the most powerful storylines in, in a movie that I've seen. The movie is set in Vietnam just after the Vietnam War. And there's this man. He's incredibly poor. He's a, he's a rickshaw driver, which is their equivalent of a taxi driver, except it's not with a car. It's, it's a bicycle and a little cart. And this man falls in love with another woman. The woman that he falls in love with, too, is poor. But the way that she tries to remedy her poverty is she sells herself into prostitution. So every night she goes into this fancy hotel, uh, the kind of hotel that she just dreams about being able to enjoy. And she sells herself. Day after day, slowly, her life is eroding. It's being destroyed. She's become a slave. But every night, this man waits and waits for her to come out of the hotel. And he takes her home. Sometimes till two, three in the morning. One day the man asks her, you know, how much does a night with you cost? She says $50. He's never seen $50 before until one day he wins a cycle race. He wins $50. He says, I'd like to buy you for tonight. And because she needs the money, she says, okay. So he purchases a night in that room, takes her to that room, asks her to get in the nightgown, asks her then to lie on the bed. Then he says, I purchased you tonight for one reason. I want to watch you fall asleep. That's all I want to do. I just want you to be able to enjoy this hotel the way everyone else does because you're deserving of it. He brings up this fancy meal. has a breakfast waiting for her in the morning. And she's so exhausted that after the meal, she just falls asleep. She wakes up and he's gone. And she can't go back to prostitution because the selfless act of a man giving every penny he had using it not to exploit her but to serve her to say to her you're not a whore you're a princess that's the gospel and I don't know about you but I'm a slave sold in this land. But I have a master 
gave everything, every penny, not to exploit me, but to serve me so he could woo me and melt me. Do you see him hanging on the cross? Let me ask this. What other master will do this for you? What other master will so delight in you, who takes such joy in you? What other master is there who will die for you and give everything for you? Offer yourselves. Offer your bodies. Offer everything to him. Become his slave. And he'll call you son and daughter. Let's pray. God, that's what we're here to witness right now. Our people who in their own way have prostituted themselves but who have been wooed back to the Master and are throwing their lives into the Master where His death becomes their death and His resurrection becomes their resurrection. And I just pray, God, that you would receive glory today for great things you have done.